Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. We took a look at Samson. There's much to criticize about this man's life, but there's also much to give praise for. Especially when we remember in the book of Hebrews, he's listed there with Gideon and Barak and Jephthah. And we also have to remember, you know, and I sort of think of Samson in this context, that he is not unlike Lot. And when we look at a man like Lot, there's not a whole lot of good that we would say when we look at him. And yet the scripture speaks of righteous Lot. And that's because in the, the reality of things is there's none righteous, no, not one. And it only goes to reveal our own judgmentalness as we look at others and we expect them, whether they're biblical characters or one another, to live up to a certain standard. And it places us on sort of a pedestal from which we look down on others because they don't live up to our standards or our liking or our expectation. And yet God uses people like them. Indeed, he uses people like us. And so if there's anything that comes through the book of Judges to me, it is the grace of God and how he uses flawed people in incredible ways. Now, if you turn with me to chapter 3, depending on our time, I'm hoping we may look at these first two judges, Othniel and Echud. Othniel, unfortunately, doesn't fit the description that I just described because of all the judges, he's the only one about whom we have a significant amount of information, not a great deal of information, not like Gideon or Samson, but we have a little bit more information about him than we do some of the other judges like Shagmar, of whom we get one verse, you know, and he slew like 600 Philistines and that's all we learn of him. But Othniel, we learn a little bit more. And what's neat about Othniel is nothing bad is said about him. Unlike Gideon, unlike Barak. Like Joseph, nothing bad said about him. Like Messiah, nothing said about him. But Othniel is an incredible character. Let's read about him just for a moment. In verse 7 of chapter 3, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a refrain that's going to keep coming up. And it ought not to shock us, although it oftentimes does, because if we looked at ourselves, we would say, and Gary Dershinsky again did that which was wrong or evil in the eyes of the Lord. So these men and women are not unlike ourselves. 
But again, they did what was evil. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Baal was the god of the Canaanites. Asherah was his consort. She was a fertility god. He was a power god, a god of thunder, a god of uh, the elements in the heavens. Now, I want you to focus on something here. Notice that he says that their sin was in that they forgot the Lord. You know, the Bible uses the word to forget and to remember over and over again. Think about Yeshua. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what Moses said, remember the Lord and walk in his ways, follow his ways. And oftentimes the psalmist will cry out, remember me, Lord, for good. Remember your mercy and grace. This idea of forgetting and remembering doesn't mean that they were unable to recollect who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is any more than it means that to us today. When it says they forgot the Lord, it wasn't like they no longer thought about him or knew of his existence. What it means is they no longer, now think about this, they no longer were relating to him as he truly is with regard to his character. In other words, they knew everything about God. They knew much about his character, but no longer were they honoring that, respecting that, or acting in regards to that. And it was he who enabled Kushan Rashatayim in order to take over Israel. He sold them into the... In other words, it's almost like he now took Israel like the Egyptians and sold them as slaves. And therefore, the Mesopotamians could do whatever they would want to do because God permitted it. God allowed it. God actively had it occur. He sold them. Very interesting. And in the final analysis, what God did was really an act of mercy because his intention is to reawaken the Israelites to their sin. And very often we're not reawakened to it until we suffer or struggle or experience the consequences of our sin. And so he gives them into the hands of the Mesopotamians, that they may be brought to a place where they would cry out to God. And isn't that interesting? Because that is exactly what they do. Why? Because they didn't forget him. They were basically ignoring him. But now, after eight years of servitude, they cry out to God. Their outcry to God was a cry of repentance. That's what the purpose of struggles and trials are often meant to do for us, to bring us to a place of repentance and a place of responsiveness to God, that we would live in light of his true character and calling on our lives. So they cry out to God. What might they have cried? Lord, forgive us of our sin. Please remember your mercy and grace toward us. Bring a deliverer that we might be delivered. So what does God do? He sends trouble And then he sends a deliverer. Notice he doesn't send the deliverer merely because they want a deliverer. He sends the deliverer to deliver them. They don't deliver themselves. God in his grace delivers them, reaches out to them, and provides for them. And who does he send but Othniel? Now, who is Othniel? 
Othniel, and this is what makes him so marvelous, is the nephew of Caleb. So who is Caleb? Well, Caleb and Joshua were the two men of Israel who, along with the other spies, went in to spy out the land of promise. And while for all the other spies, their hearts melted because of the enemies that were there and calling upon us. But the enemies that were there, but it was Joshua and Caleb who out of a remembrance of the character of God, they didn't just remember that he delivered them from Egypt, they remembered him for who he is. And if he delivered them from Egypt, he could do marvelously greater things than even that. And so as he delivered them from Egypt, Joshua and Caleb said, why are we fearful of these enemies? Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is more powerful. Our God is real. Their gods are not. He can deliver us. But it was not to be. And so Caleb waits another 45 years to enter the land of promise with Joshua, the other one that was faithful to God, Joshua, the leader, Caleb, an incredible liberator. And after Caleb joins forces with all of the other armed men of Israel to bring about the deliverance of the land of Israel and the possession of the land of Israel. He then, I think it's around chapter 14 of Joshua, approaches Joshua and he says, now that I have helped Israel secure the land, allow me to receive the inheritance that I was given when I first saw the land 45 years before. He's now 85 years old, Caleb. And he said, because of God's power, because of God's strength, I'm as strong now as I was in those days. And Joshua says, go on up and take it. And what does he take? He takes Kiriat Arba. Today, it is the city of Hebron. And he secures that property. And in the beginning of the book of Judges, Caleb then makes a proclamation. Anyone who will go up and secure the neighboring town of Kiryat Safer can have my daughter as a wife. Othniel is off and running. He secures the village, and Caleb gives him his wife. And now in chapter 3, the Israelites have cried out for a deliverer, and who's the deliverer that God sends but Othniel? So not only was he the nephew of Caleb, he learned much from Caleb. He learned to trust God. But out of that trust, God elevated him to a status as a judge in Israel, a deliverer and a spiritual force. And the scripture says that he delivered the people because the spirit of the Lord came upon him. So get this. Not only does God send trouble, he sends them a deliverer, and then he sends his spirit to empower the deliverer. Now, here's a difference between what happens here, what happens today. In the book of Judges, the spirit would come on a given individual, be it Othniel, Echud, or Samson. Today, his spirit is given to all of us. We all are given his spirit to bring deliverance in our own day and age, to experience deliverance in our own lives, and in our own families, in our own community. 
And so we don't have to rely merely on one individual, but we all now have a share in the Spirit of God as he indwells and empowers each and every one of us. Isn't that kind of neat? But here, God sent trouble, he sent a deliverer, and now he sends a spirit, and Othniel delivers them. But the section on Othniel doesn't end with peace. Indeed, they were in service for eight years. Now he's delivered and he provides peace for 40 years. But the section on Othniel in verse 11 ends, Then Othniel, the son of Kenez, died. And so why is that? Because no matter how powerful a deliverer is, no matter how wise a leader might be like Solomon, no matter how insightful like Moses as a lawgiver was, no matter how faithful like the apostles after the Spirit of God came upon them were, they all die. What the book of Judges also points to is that we need a judge who will not die. If we're going to have a lasting peace, we need a judge who will always bring peace We need a judge who will always be there and will not die. And you know what's kind of neat? If you look at Revelation chapter 1, you can just listen. It's a very short verse. But in Revelation chapter 1, when Messiah Yeshua is described for us, John sees him. In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, get this, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's what we need if we are to have peace forever. God may bring a judge, but the judge is going to die. We need a judge who will not die, and Messiah is that one. We need to remember who God is and be faithful to him. You know, one of the reasons, well, before I tell you this, take a look. Do turn with me in this if you have your Bibles. Take a look at 2 Peter. And in chapter 1, Second Peter, that's before Hebrews, isn't it? Isn't it? Somebody help me out here. White. Oh, it's a, all right. Here we go. I just failed that test. I got to take that Bible class over again. Second Peter chapter 1. Check this out. He says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, righteousness, godliness, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, now pay attention, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Messiah. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. When you think about Israel, they forgot the Lord. 
If we're going to walk faithfully and fully in the knowledge of Messiah and following Him, we have to remember these qualities that the Lord now wants to stir up and create in us, for they are the characteristics of Messiah Himself. But notice, what he tells us is the reason why we fail to live this way is because we forget that that's who we are. We don't live in light of the character that we actually are. That's what forgetfulness is about. But notice what Peter goes on to say, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform your, confirm your calling and election, For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. You see, these qualities are not things they forgot in the sense of, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to be righteous or holy or whatever it is. No, it means they are no longer caring about living in light of who they really are. And so why is the scriptures written? In one regard, it is to continually remind us of who we really are. And it made me think about why we come every week. Because we all need reminding. Otherwise, we like the Israelites of old or the people that Peter is is talking about will not live in light of who we actually are. So when we light the candles every week, some people may say, you know, it's so boring, the candles and the same prayer and everything, but we need reminding of who Yeshua is. He's the one upon whom the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit rests. And when we come, that's why we're coming for Him. We would see Yeshua. We may come to sing, but we come for Yeshua. We may come to visit with one another, welcome one another, but it's for Yeshua. We may come so we can get out early to have nosh, but it's for Yeshua that we come. And we need to be reminded. So we light the candles every week. We say the same liturgy. People say the same liturgy. You know, Jewish people have been saying that same liturgy for thousands of years. And in many Christian circles, that's true too. Why? Because we need to be reminded How often do we read through the scriptures every year? If we say, oh, this year I'm reading it through, do we stop reading it through the next year? We need reminding, for we are a forgetful people. Why does Yeshua say, do this in remembrance of me? Why do we do Passover every year? To remember what the Lord has done. Why do you hear me pontificate every week? So we are reminded of God's word. That's what you want to hear. Because if we're not reminded... We will forget who we really are. We're children of the king. We're separated from the world unto God, and we are to live like that. But we won't if we fail to realize who we really are. And so we need a judge, a deliverer, who's constantly with us, not with someone else, but with us. And so Emmanuel, God with us is with us. And he is the one who has died for us, but is alive forevermore. And as wonderful a man as Othniel was, as courageous a man Othniel was, as spiritual a man Othniel was, he's not enough for us. Because like every one of us, he too died. 
But we need one who, though may have died, died for us, not because of his own sin. And he was one who would live forevermore. Now, the second judge is also kind of a neat character. I suppose we could stop there and get out early, but no. We will press on because I want to share with you about this guy who I absolutely love. This man is Ehud. And so if you look at chapter 3, verse 12, the people of Israel again did was evil in the sight of the Lord. And look what happened. Now the Lord acts again. He strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Again, God is the one who raised up the enemies of Israel, empowered them to do what they do so that they might turn to him. That's a hard lesson. Can we really look at the weaknesses, the struggles in our, that we have and say, God, how are you using this for me? What are you awakening in me? What is the sin I need to be made aware of that I would cry out to you for mercy and grace and deliverance and empowerment to live for you? But look at Ehud. This is such a cool thing. Not only is Moab, but look, now we have an alliance. Before, it was just the Mesopotamians. Maybe we'd handle them, maybe not. But now we have an alliance of the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Of course, today, you know, the Ammon is the, is the capital of Jordan, right? So the Ammonites, they dwelt in the northern part of what is today Jordan. The Amalekites, they were the first enemies of Israel, They were the ones that attacked Israel when we came out of Egypt. Moses had his hands up, raised by Ur and Aaron. As long as his hands were up, Joshua was victorious over the Amalekites. It was of the Amalekites in Ezekiel, uh, Exodus 17, that it says, I will wage war with the Amalekites from generation to generation until they are no more. And the last Amalekite to bite the dust is Haman in the book of Esther. We will read about that (laughs) in a couple of weeks when we celebrate Purim. So hold your booze and don't bring your groggers until then. So the Amalekites and the Ammonites and the Moabites are all united against Israel. And look what they did. This is so amazing. They took possession of the city of Palms. That's the city of Jericho. That's the first city the Israelites took when they came in under Joshua. And now the period of the judges right after Joshua, and they lose Jericho. And how did they get Jericho? God just made the walls to crumble. It was the supernatural activity of God displayed in a manner that they had, perhaps we might say, never seen before. And now they lost control of that city. That's the degree to which God will empower Israel's enemies to bring struggles into their lives in order that they would turn to him. He's more important with us being turned to him than that our life goes smoothly. He'll take away the Jerichos from us. In fact, he'll take away the temple from his people for over 2,000 years. He'll take away the city of Jerusalem until 1967. He'll scatter his people to the four corners of the earth because he's more concerned about them as his people than the things they have or that he gives to them. That's true for you and I as well. He cares for us. God, remember what Isaiah said? He is for us. And so even the struggles he brings into our lives are for us as hard as it may be to see. And so now we're paying tribute. Back to the story, we're paying tribute. And look what happens. It says that in verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. 
And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Echud. And by the way, they're in servitude now for 18 years. Before it was eight years. Now it's another decade that they have to endure. They cry. It took them a little longer to start crying out this time. But they cry out to God. He sends them a deliverer. And look who he sends. Echud, the son of Gerar, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, this is really strange. You know, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say a left-handed man. It says one unable to use his right hand. This man may have been paralyzed or disabled. God just called a disabled man to be the deliverer and the judge of Israel. Not from Judah, like Othniel, but from Benjamin. And by the way, the name Benjamin means son of my right hand, and he's not even that. And so God has now laid on Ehud the challenge to deliver his people. And he's short an arm for whatever reason. And it's not even his good arm. You know, if check out in Scripture how often the right hand is mentioned, the right hand of the power of God, the right hand of God's salvation, that his Messiah will sit at his right hand. Everything's right hand. That's one's strength, one's power, because most people are righties. Even though in Benjamin, there were a lot of lefties. You had lefty slingers. And now you have Echud who can't use his right hand. So he does the best he can with his left. So what does he do? And it's really kind of interesting how the story unfolds. Because he's the one that's sent to bring the tribute to the king of Moab, Eglon. Well, this is a disabled man. What are we going to do with him? How can we use him? Well, we'll just have him bring the money to our overlord at this time. And so he, with a group of men, a group of an entourage, they go to bring the tribute to Eglon. Now, before he goes, we read this ominous statement. Echud made for himself a sword. Now, you have to ask yourself, why is he making a sword? He's disabled. He doesn't have an arm. He doesn't have a right arm to use. So what's what's with this sword? And it's not just any old sword. It's a double-edged sword. He means business. And it's not just a double-edged sword. It's an 18-inch double-edged sword. This is a long sword. And he straps it to his right thigh under his cloak. Why is he doing this? Why is he sneaking his sword under his cloak? You know, we're wondering what's going to happen with this thing. And then we read... And he presents the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And then we read this. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And you ask yourself, why is that even told? Well, now we know why he's got such a big blade. You know, if he's a very fat man, he needs not just a little dagger. He needs something good to get through. And he's planning something. And now we're wondering, will he be able to get close enough in order to do his job? And make his point. I like that, Carlton. But you're not up here. You're down there. I like that, to make his point. I have to remember that. Now, look what happens. When Echud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the money. But he's leaving with them. So he presents the money, and he doesn't get the opportunity just yet to do what he's come to do. So he leaves. We know that he leaves because look at verse 18. It says that he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. So he takes off from Jericho. 
And they go back toward the Jordan Valley. He's going east toward the Jordan River. And right by the Jordan River is the area of Gilgal. It means rolling, where the waters of the Jordan rolled and streamed down into the Dead Sea. Now, why is Gilgal so important? Well, think about this. When the Israelites first came into the Promised Land under Joshua, they crossed the Jordan. Before they crossed the Jordan... Joshua sent out the spies to check out Jericho. They come back with insights into the city of Jericho, and God tells them it doesn't even matter that you have these insights because I'm just going to cause the, water, the walls to fall. But he, they get the, prison, the spies get into the city. By the way, the Hebrew word for spies means footmen. And so they just are footing along, sort of, you know, making their way through the corridors, and then they get back to Joshua. Now Joshua says, okay, we're going to cross. What does he do? He tells the priests, get into the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant, and like the Red Sea, the waters part so that the Israelites can cross the Jordan River. Once they cross, God tells Joshua to have representatives of each of the 12 tribes to go into the Jordan right where the priests are and to take out a stone apiece. 12 stones are taken out of the Jordan. They take the stones to Gilgal on the opposite side, the west side now, of the Jordan River. And they mount the stones up like an altar. And it's to be a reminder of what God had done in bringing the people into the promised land and opening the waters. But look what we read here. As Ehud goes back north, he's headed north to Ephraim. He's got to go up the Jordan Valley, so he crosses over from Jericho toward the Jordan River, and then he's going to go north. But right by the Jordan River is Gilgal, where those 12 stones were. But now what is set up there? Idols. The very place where God had done a miracle and bringing the people in are idols to the false gods. It's there that perhaps Ehud took a look at those idols and said, what are we doing Our God is the God of power and strength. He tells those who came with him, keep going. But I've got a message to bring to the king. And so he comes back to to Eglon. Look at verse 28 or 27. He says, I have a secret message for you, O king. We all know what the message is. And he says, the king then commanded silence, And he sends his attendants out from his presence. Now, why would he do that? Because Eglon's a disabled man. He only has use of his left hand. The king is figuring, what danger can he present to me? And he doesn't have a sword. It's under his cloak. And so he figures, you have a secret message for me? No one else is to hear. It's just for me. He sends them all out, and Eglon reaches down to his right thigh, rips out his sword, plunges it into Eglon, so much so that the very hilt of the blade goes into his body. It comes out the other side. While he was a one-handed man, he had a lot of power in that hand. And what Eglon misread was simply because a person can't use one arm doesn't mean he can't use his other. And what does Echu do? Eglon is sitting in the roof, 
And they made a chamber on the roof that would have open up. You know, we read something like this. When Yeshua heals a man that was led down through the roof, up on the roof when it was warm, they would put certain uh, chambers with windows that would allow the breeze to come through. And Eglon is sitting there. He's gained a great deal of weight, perhaps because of the tribute money that he has received from the Israelites. And now as he takes his lounge up on the rooftop, Echud kills him. Now, the text is very clear. It says in the Hebrew, and the ESV version has it. The NIV does not. But it says that when he struck him, he struck him with such force and veracity. It says, even the dung, this is the scripture, came out. Echud then locks the doors of the upper chamber, takes off, goes north to Ephraim. He rallies the Israelites to defeat the Moabites, the Amalekites, and the Ammonites. His attendants, the guards, are outside. Why don't they come in? It happens so quick, he doesn't even let out a scream. But it also says they don't go in because the odor of the dung begins to waft through the building. And they figure, oh, he's relieving himself. So they don't want to bother him. But too much time goes by. Read the text, you'll see it. Too much time goes by. Finally, they break in and they see that he is dead. And then as the text then now, this raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? On the one hand, can God really use an assassin for his own usage? That really, again, because we're sitting on our perches looking down, we say, that could never be. But look what Echud says. In verse 28, he says to the Ephraimites, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. I love the humility. He doesn't say, look, I just nailed the guy. Let's get him, you know. No, he says, the Lord has given him into your hands. So let us now defeat them. They come down to the crossing of the Jordan. They don't allow the Moabites, Amalekites, Ammonites to escape. And some 10,000 men are killed. Now consider this. At the end of the chapter... It says that because of this, the Israelites had 80 years of rest. That's the largest in the book of Judges. And it came about by a disabled man. So what does this make me think? If we're going to think of Yeshua, with regard to Othniel, we need a judge who will not die. But here's the other thing. When you look at this chapter, you begin to realize that sometimes God uses people and does things that we least expect. Todd and I and Mary Lou, we were talking about that last night. God works unexpectedly. He doesn't necessarily work the way we would expect or imagine. He uses an assassin, you know, to do this. And he uses a disabled one. And so when I think of what we need or what we're given... Our Messiah is a disabled Messiah, isn't he? When he came, well, what does Isaiah say? We didn't recognize him for who he is. We didn't esteem him. We saw him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought he was dying for his own sins. In other words, when we looked at Yeshua, it was like the way Eglon looked at Echud. He can't be a problem to us because he's disabled. He can't be the Messiah because he's disabled. I mean, Messiah dies. Messiah gets hungry. Messiah gets tired. 
Messiah suffers the torture of his enemies. Is this the Messiah that he would endure such things? But here's the other side of the coin. Not only does this reveal that we need to be careful how we judge others, for if we were there in the time of Messiah, we may have judged him just like those who rejected him. How can he be the Messiah, one who was born in Bethlehem, one who's, you know, there are questions about his uh, birth and his parents, one about whom is having to ride on a donkey and he's not coming as a king to destroy our enemies. But the other side of the coin is the ones that God comes for are the echudes of life. He comes for the disabled. He comes for sinners. He comes not for the righteous, but for the sinners. And one passage that totally changed a great deal of my theology, and this is where I'd like to close with, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in, ch- in, chapter, in chapter 1, it says in verse 28, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Messiah, the one who is crucified, the one who is a stumbling block. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now listen to this. For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... We are in Messiah who became to us wisdom, became for us righteousness, became for us sanctification, became for us redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Lord uses a disabled judge to bring deliverance to a disabled people who are ongoingly singing against the Lord. And the Lord brought what we might say is a disabled Messiah, a Messiah in weakness, not in strength, a Messiah who would die and not simply be, one who was not recognized, whose appearance did not attract us to him. And this one who was like Ehud, we might say, though not physically as such, was disabled sought to attract others like Ehud who are disabled in many ways. For our greatest disability is not external, it's internal. Our greatest disability is that which alienates us from the great God of this universe, our sin. 
And because he lives forever, he can provide us with peace. Because he died eternally, somehow mysteriously, for our sin, we can have forgiveness of our sin. And we can do something more. We can now rejoice in our weaknesses because it's through our weaknesses that the Lord is seen. And it's through our weaknesses that we are made strong. I know none of us wants weaknesses. We all want to escape them. We all want deliverance from them. We want to pray, God, take care of this. But there's a sense in which our weaknesses are the portals to the very presence and power of God. For it's in our weaknesses that we need his spirit to make all the difference in the world. So perhaps today, as hard as this might be, we might thank the Lord for the struggles in our lives, for he intends to use them to bring us to him. And perhaps we can thank the Lord for the weaknesses in our lives, because it's through those weaknesses that his presence and power and strength is experienced. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.